Hey, Soma. Good to see you guys. Hey, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark. And thank you for the four of you who spoke last week. Unbelievably good, let me say. Wow. I wish I was here. It was really, really amazing. Don't forget uh, the studies are online for groups. So I'm putting them up every week. And the books I've just handed out uh, are there for you to look through. Um, today we're getting to that passage we've just read, Mark 9, uh, 2 to 13, the transfiguration. At the end of Mark 8, a change occurs that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Caesarea Philippi, up here, the Sea of Galilee down there, Caesarea Philippi, right in the north. Uh, the disciples realise Jesus is the Messiah So the penny drops for them for the first time. But then Jesus starts teaching them that he's come to suffer and die and then rise again. And the disciples find that very hard to comprehend and accept. Peter even rebukes Jesus saying, no, you're not going to die. Their understanding of the Messiah was a political deliverer who would make the nation of Israel all-powerful and the Romans subservient. So what Jesus is saying about his suffering, rejection by his own people and death, was truly shocking for the disciples. And so in Mark chapter 9, we catch up with the disciples six days later and Jesus takes the inner circle... uh, Peter, James and John, up on a mountain, uh, I think it's probably Mount Hermon, up up the top there, and we'll talk about that later, but somewhere around there. And the glory of God overshadows them and Jesus is transfigured before them. Uh, Now, what's all this about? Well, firstly, a bit of a backstory, because this is uniquely tied to the Old Testament. The presence of God in the Old Testament is the Shekinah, which is a word that means the glory cloud. It was God's visible presence with his people. If you go back to the Old Testament, Israel first experienced this as they were leaving Egypt. This cloud came and led them out into the wilderness. And at night, this cloud became a fiery pillar which was spectacular to view. Uh, The nation saw the very presence of God was with them and they saw it every day. And this cloud came down on Mount Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. And Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. And then the most intimate encounter with this glorious cloud of God's presence was perhaps... Moses' experience in Exodus 33 and 34, when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he found the people of Israel worshipping a golden calf. He was furious. He threw the commandments down and broke them. And he went to the tent of meeting, a place he had put outside of the camp where he could go and pray to God. And he went outside the camp to pray. And the glory of God's presence came came down and overshadowed Moses at the tent of meeting. And the people all stood at the entrance to their tents, watching as Moses met with God. And it says in Exodus 33 verse 11, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face 
as a man would to a friend. And the people began to understand God speaks with Moses. God's presence is with Moses. And they saw it. And one day Moses asked the Lord, the I am, could he see his glory? And God said, all right, come up here. And put, he put Moses in the cleft of a rock, put his hand over Moses, passed by. And then when he would passed by, took his hand off Moses so that Moses could see the afterglow of the glory of God. Because if he saw the full thing, he would have died. And this is the presence of God with his people. The light. And they knew it. They understood this. And then later, God picked two places where he would locate his presence. Firstly, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent in the Exodus that they made, uh, which was lovingly assembled and reassembled by the Levites as they moved from here to there, as they wandered in the desert, and then as they were in the promised land fighting with the Canaanites. But it was the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. As centuries passed by the time of Solomon, he was allowed to do what David dreamed he could do, that is to build God a house, a temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says that when the house of God was finished, Solomon was on his knees praying, O Lord, this place can't contain you. You are the creator of the universe. Even the universe cannot contain you. But by your grace, will you let your presence, your glory, be here in this temple? And when he finished praying, fire came down from heaven to consume the offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord, his presence, filled the temples. And all the priests couldn't even stand up, were knocked to the ground. And the people began to worship God, for he is a God of great kindness. And God is with us. And that's what they were saying and seeing. The problem was Israel's relationship with the glory of God, the presence of God, began to go downhill fairly quickly. Aside from the occasional high spot, the temple was well, just depreciated over the next 400 years. By the time of Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel has a vision that captures the idolatry of the people. He sees 70 elders hanging around in the temple, not worshipping God, but worshipping idols that they put on the walls of the temple, making filthy offerings to God in the temple. And then Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, there's this terrible story of the presence, the glory of God leaving that place. Slowly, methodically, God in tears, God broken hearted by his people, climbing up the Mount of Olives and looking back to where he had once met with his people. And the spirit of God departed and they still had the temple, they still had the rituals but God's presence had left. And then if we jump forward into the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, when the angel of God appeared to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, for his son is going to be born, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And something happened. The glory of God 
reappeared after all these years, except now the glory with us is in Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, uh, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In other words, like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God's presence is with us in his Son. He is the light of the world. And during the next 30 years, after Jesus is born, it's kind of quiet. Uh, but Jesus steps then into his public ministry and God's glory with us is unveiled as Jesus shows his authority over nature, calming the storm. We find he is the Lord of life as he heals the sick and raises the dead. And he's the Lord of creation, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. And finally, Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. But what they didn't know was that Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do. He had come to suffer and die. And the way God's presence was going to be with us in Jesus was that Jesus would take our place, that he would suffer and die for the redemption of the people. And then he would come with power in his resurrection to establish his kingdom. And so let's look at this transfiguration of... Finally, we get there. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Remember the disciples, you know, they're, they're despairing. They're in shock because of what Jesus has just told them about his death. They had expected him to start the political machinery and march on Rome. But instead, he talks about dying. They needed encouragement. And I think we always need encouragement too. His statements about suffering and dying, seriously, conflicted with their hopes for this long-awaited Messiah. He talked about that we are to carry our cross and follow, that we are to give up ourselves. And it sounded so radical, so depressing from one point of view, so challenging. They must have been in shock. And so I think Jesus takes them up this mountain to this fresh, crisp, air and gives them like this blast of encouragement that will change their lives. It will change their outlooks. It will change their hearts. They will never forget, although it took them a long time to put it together and understand it. So that won't happen until much later. Um, but I hope that this will change our hearts, that we will see and understand and that we will never forget what we're told here in Mark chapter 9. So verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now Matthew's gospel says that it was a high mountain. Luke's gospel says they went up to pray. If you go to Israel today, the tour guides will take you up a fairly small mountain called Mount Tabor. Tabor. It's about 400 metres high. Not much of a mountain, but it's got easy access and a road that goes right up to the top. <laughs> and they take tourists up there and say, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. But Matthew says it's a high mountain 
and they've just been in Caesarea Philippi right to the north and the only mountain up there is Mount Hermon. It's the largest and highest peak in the Middle East. So that could be the place or a peak around there somewhere, one of those peaks. Uh, The problem is, of course, it's less accessible. It's uncomfortably close to Lebanon in Syria. There's no easy way up, so it's not ideal for tourists. Now, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, and these are the three who were allowed in the room, you remember, when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. And these are the three who Jesus will take to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he waits to be arrested. And now these are the three who are seeing this transfiguration. And Moses took three guys up with him on the mountain too. Luke's gospel tells us Peter, James and John fell asleep, uh, like they always seem to do whenever Jesus says, let's go and pray. And it's while they're sleeping and Jesus is praying that this transfiguration takes place and the disciples wake up and see it. And boy, does this wake them up. Their eyes open and their eyes open in more ways than one. Jesus is transfigured before them. He's shining and his clothes are dazzling white. And Mark says, no one on earth could bleach them that white. No laundry could come anywhere near this. Moses' face shines when he descends from the mountain after talking with God. But there's a sense here that the Moses moment is lesser than what we're seeing here with Jesus. I think Jesus is being caught up with and bathed in the love, the power and the kingdom of God so that it transforms his whole being into light. Perhaps in a similar way that music transforms words that are sung. And I think this is a glimpse of Jesus' true glory as the Son of God. This showed them who Jesus really is in a powerful way. It showed them that he would, what he would be after his resurrection, that he could conquer death. It verifies what he's been saying, that victory will come through suffering. And here they're given a glimpse of Jesus' victory, of his resurrection glory. But the disciples won't understand this till much later. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus laid aside his glory to come to earth. He emptied himself. And Jesus prayed in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I think we're getting a glimpse of Jesus' former glory and his future glory at his resurrection. So this is meant to encourage these disciples. And it did make a lasting impression. Peter writes two letters at the end of the New Testament. And that second letter, chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of the majesty. I was there. I saw it. 
He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We heard it. We saw it. And Peter can't get enough of it. And it happened, well, in his mind, it's just as strong as it was the day he saw it. And John, writing his gospel, says, John 1.14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw the light. We saw who Jesus truly is. They recognise he is the Son of God. They should have known from that that he could conquer death and that they would find eternal life with him. But at first, they can't take it in. Then verse 4, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, what are Elijah and Moses doing here? In Mark's Gospel, people have been talking about Elijah Now Elijah is here and Moses. Elijah and Moses were gone a long time ago. Are they still alive in some place? Why are they talking to Jesus? And how did they know that this was Elijah Elijah and Moses? Did they have name tags? I don't know. (laughs) I'm open to suggestions. And what a conference This must have been tonight the special guest, uh, Moses, who represents the law and the sacrifices and the feast days and all the foreshadowing of the Messiah who was to come. And Elijah, representing the prophets and all that they declared about the Messiah who would come. This is a an incredible picture. It's saying the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah, agree with Jesus, bear witness to Jesus, affirm what Jesus is saying. In fact, Luke's Gospel says, chapter 9, that they were talking with Jesus about his exodus. His exodus. The Greek word in Luke chapter 9 is the word exodus, meaning Jesus' death and resurrection. His death and resurrection will be the new exodus. That's what Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about. The new exodus for the people of God into salvation, into the promised land, will be Jesus' passion, death and resurrection. The promised land of the new creation. It's amazing what they're talking about with Jesus. The law agrees that Jesus has to make this new exodus of his death and resurrection for the people. The prophets say they agree the Messiah when he comes must give his life to rise again 
And this will be the way to the glory to come. This will be the salvation of the people. Moses and Elijah are in agreement. And the verb tenses in Luke's gospel suggest that they talked for quite a while together about this. And both Elijah and Moses, you might remember, went up with God and met him on a mountaintop. Moses, Mount Sinai. Elijah, Mount Horeb, which I think is Mount Sinai. Both of them were shown God's glory and here they are again. And both of them had famous departures. Moses dies and God buries him on Mount Nebo. Elijah doesn't die, he gets in a chariot of fire (laughs) and takes off. He doesn't die. Both of them had strange exits and both of them were expected to return. Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me, listen to him, Deuteronomy 18. Elijah, we're told in Malachi 4, would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his exodus. They're affirming God's intention that Jesus must suffer and die. It was God's plan all away. The only way to the promised land is through the cross. And Moses had been dead 1,400 years. Elijah gone, what, over 900 years. And they are both speaking to Jesus about his death and resurrection. And they're in agreement. So if there was ever a time for Peter, James and John to be quiet and listen, (laughs) this is the time. But Peter isn't going to listen, is he? (laughs) Peter's going to say something. I love verse 6. He didn't know what to say, so he said something. (laughs) Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So these guys have woken up (laughs) from sleep to this sight. They've watched Moses and Elijah and Jesus for some time. And then Luke says, when Elijah and Moses were about to leave, Peter offers to build three tents or three tabernacles, three shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. I think it must have been the beginning of the idea of building a church on every suspected holy site in the Holy Land (laughs) already. We blame Peter for that. No. Uh, Now, in one sense, what Peter says here is not entirely crazy. It's not entirely crazy. He's trying to prolong the moment, wouldn't you? And he's also trying to hook this in with one of the Jewish festivals, the Festival of Tabernacles, where to this day in October each year, the Jews set up tents in all kinds of places uh, to party in. And many Jews in the first century expected that God would one day tabernacle again with his people. Maybe, Maybe Peter thought, ah, this is it. Let's put up tabernacles. So I think to some extent, Peter does the best he can in the moment and we shouldn't be too hard on him. But of course, Peter misses some of the significance here. 
One of his mistakes is that he wants to make three tents instead of one. He's missing the significance that Elijah and Moses are there as witnesses affirming who Jesus is and what he's doing. That it's not Elijah, Moses and Jesus, it's Elijah and Moses bearing witness to Jesus. They are not on equal par. The law is fulfilled and completed and superseded in Jesus, the Son of God. The prophets, their words are fulfilled in the coming of the Son of God. So Peter isn't quite getting that. So it's an important enough issue that in verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with with them except Jesus. Luke tells us that it's while Peter was speaking that this cloud rolls in and God speaks to them in no uncertain terms about the primacy of Jesus. This is my son My beloved son, listen to him. That statement brings together Psalm 2 verse 7 about the Messiah. This is my son. And Isaiah 42 verse 1 about the suffering servant. Here is my servant in whom I take delight. Jesus is both the Messiah, the son of God. And the suffering servant. And listen to him, echoes Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet who was to come, a greater than Moses. Now, it's not unusual to have clouds come in at this altitude but this is no ordinary cloud. It had been 600 years since Israel had seen the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah. And yet here the father moves in to interrupt Peter. And Matthew says the disciples fell on their faces. And Jesus has to actually reach over and help Peter stand up because he was so terrified. Jesus says, don't be afraid. The voice of the Father who declared similar words over Jesus at his baptism now speaks again. The Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God with us, the cloud that Moses saw on Mount Sinai and later passed by him in the cleft, the glory that passed by Elijah at Mount Horeb, And Elijah heard the still small voice. The cloud that came onto the tabernacle and down onto the tent of meeting and overshadowed the temple but then left the temple. That cloud surrounds Jesus. And Peter is giving his opinion. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's set up a tent for each of you. And the father says, hey, Peter, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. See who he is. See his glory. And the prophets and the law point to him. They're all about him. He is what everything is about. And before Peter can fathom this, he looks around and Moses and Elijah are gone and only Jesus remains. Everything depends on Jesus Which is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say, me, Moses and Elijah are the way, the truth and the life. If anyone thirsts, come to me and I will give you living water. He didn't say, let him come to us. Come to me if you're heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls in me. It's always about Jesus. Peter didn't get it, but to emphasise, listen to him, Moses and Elijah disappear. And Jesus is left standing by himself. And this is what Mark has been stressing all the way through his gospel. That Jesus has an authority, unlike the teachers of the law. The teachers of religious law were always debating and discussing what Moses meant. Jesus speaks directly for God as the beloved son of God. The greater than Moses, who was to come, is now here. Listen to him. And Mark is saying Jesus has come as the living embodiment of the presence of God with us. Here's the reality which the tabernacle and temple were but signposts pointing forward to. And so verse 9, as they're coming down from the mountain, once again we know this theme by now. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves. It's one of the few occasions Jesus tells somebody to be quiet about somebody, and they actually are. (laughs) They kept it to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. The disciples don't understand. When Jesus keeps saying, I will rise from the dead, the Son of Man must rise from the dead, they don't understand. For them, resurrection is something that happens to all of the people of God at the end of history, not something that happens in the middle of history to one man. And they just can't understand There's no place in their understanding of how they thought it was all going to pan out that they could fit this. And they didn't have the benefit that we have of looking back and seeing what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. So let's acknowledge how difficult it was for them. And then verse 11, with this vision of Elijah, it's natural that they wanted to know the role Elijah plays in all of this. 
And this question about Elijah probably also stems from the fact that people were saying Jesus is Elijah. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus asked, who do they say I am? And the disciples say, people say that you're Elijah. So the Elijah atmosphere is thick. So verse 11, they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus' response is interesting, but terribly hard to follow. He first agrees with the teachers of the law, which is a rarity. He normally condemns the teachers of religious law. Verse 12, Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. That's what Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 said. The prophet Malachi. And so Jesus affirms that Elijah does come first and he even says Elijah comes first to restore all things. Yet in the next breath he says, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? So Jesus has been saying again and again that the Son of Man must be rejected by the leaders and killed And the disciples are having a terrible time understanding how the great victory of the Son of Man can happen through this horrendous death. And I think what Jesus is doing here is by first affirming that Elijah does come first and restore all things, but then connecting it with the Son of Man having to suffer, he's challenging the disciples to rethink what it means that Elijah comes first. And he says, verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And this is Jesus saying that Elijah, the Elijah who was to come, is John the Baptist. I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. This is a statement about John the Baptist being beheaded by King Herod. And what Jesus is saying is, just as you have to rethink how the Son of Man comes in victory and power, that it has to be through suffering and death, so you need to see that Elijah had to come through suffering and death. And when Jesus, then Jesus says, It is written that the Son of Man must suffer. Where is it written in the Old Testament that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? And Jesus is pulling together Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and other Psalms and Isaiah 40 to 55 and particularly the prophecies about the suffering servant and parts of the prophet Zechariah all these scriptures that have always said that the Messiah must suffer. But I don't think they understood anything (laughs) he was saying. And I think their heads were just exploding on the way down (laughs) from the mountain. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, verse 14, they're back down the mountain and a great crowd is around them 
and the teachers of the law are arguing with them. <laughs> Business as usual. But later, near the end of Jesus' ministry, in John's Gospel, as the cross looms large before Jesus, Jesus in Jerusalem went to the Feast of Tabernacles. And near the end of the festival, they lit these huge candelabras. And it celebrated that God's light had led the people through the wilderness. That's what the Festival of Tabernacles was all about. The light of God leading us forward. His Shekinah glory. At the temple the following morning, the eighth day of the feast, Jesus calls out to a very large crowd, I am the light of the world. And it couldn't have been a more powerful or more emphatic statement. I'm the one to follow. That pillar of fire, that cloud in the wilderness, that glory that came to Moses, that came down upon the mountain, that's now me. I am the light you should follow. And if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. I am the place of the Shekinah glory. I am God with us. Follow me. Well, next time we start Hebrews next week, <laughs> you know what I realised? Hebrews, the whole book is like an expansion of Mark chapter 9, 2 to 13. <laughs> It's like, anyone want to uh, make comments, ask questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Was Moses holding the Ten Commandments? <laughs> That's what. Yeah, Elijah had a chariot <laughs> parked nearby. No idea. Who had the longer beard? That's what I want to know. Ah, yes. Yeah. So you think he still had his... Yeah, yeah. Like he's been in heaven for like 900 years, still wearing yeah, yeah. his like camel's hair. Yeah, and the, and the belt. And eating honey. And, and eating honey for a long time. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, here it comes with power. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, the kingdom comes with power ultimately at the resurrection. And that's, that's what Mark is saying. Uh, through Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom comes with power. Uh, but I think the transfiguration is a preview of that. You know, it's a, ta- it's a foretaste of that resurrection power. Uh, because it's a bit weird to say some of you will not taste death until you see this, like, and it's only six days later. It's like some of you will live for six days. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It, just, it's, it feels a bit awkward to me. I think it's more likely 
he's talking about the resurrection. But I noticed that Peter, when he recalls in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uses the same language of coming with power to talk about the transfiguration. So I think Jesus comes with power in his birth and in his ministry and in his transfiguration and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension and in his coming again. He's coming. He comes through all of that. Um, But the key pivotal moment is the cross and the resurrection. Um, Yeah. I noticed too that lots of translations of this put the second coming. And I don't think that's helpful at all. I don't think it's talking about that because they will not taste death before they see this. (laughs) Of course, the one who... Yeah, anyway. Okay, what else? 